You know, where will this thing be in 10 years? What's the real value of this, you know, the app or the machine or whatever? You're doing your best to just look into a crystal ball and ask yourself, is this something that the public or that the corporate world is going to want to make use of at some point? This is Can Do, a podcast that explores the essential lessons for business success. As the world continues to feel the effects of the coronavirus, uncertainty and unpredictability have become the status quo. It has never been more important to learn from entrepreneurs and industry experts about their experiences and to hear their advice. Whether you're a business owner, entrepreneur, or your career is affected by the current economic climate, lessons shared by our guests can help you make informed decisions about your future. I'm your host, Arnie Sherman. People used to ask Eric Stern why he never worked in professional sports. It's a fair question since his father was the late David Stern, the longtime NBA commissioner. But Eric chose a different path. Equipped with a law degree from Columbia University, he came to Bozeman, Montana in 2001 to do environmental work. He later met Brian Schweitzer, a rancher who was trying to become governor. Eric signed on as Schweitzer's campaign manager, and when Schweitzer was elected as Montana's first Democratic governor in 25 years, Eric went on to spend the next 13 years in politics and government. He served as senior counsel and advisor to Schweitzer and his successor, Steve Bullock, as well as Deputy Secretary of State. But with the unexpected death of his father in 2020, Eric has returned to the family business, running an investment portfolio that helps incubate high-tech sports companies. Eric is also a journalist and commentator. He's been on CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, Montana's Face the State, and Salon Magazine. Today on Can Do, we will talk with Eric about his career, his new focus on venture capital, and the fast-paced world at the intersection of sports and business. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by the Dennis and Phyllis Washington Foundation, dedicated to investing in people to improve the quality of their lives. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. Welcome to the show, Eric Stern. Glad you could join me today. Well, thanks. Good to be here. So, so let me start off. You came to Montana in 2001 after graduating Columbia Law School to work on environmental issues. How did that all come about? Give me a little bit of the backstory. Uh, you know, everybody else I knew was going to work at corporate law firms in New York City, and it just didn't really float my boat. So I ended up out here. Uh, I did a stint at Earth Justice Legal Defense Fund, which was in Bozeman at that time, when Bozeman was still kind of a small town. And um, uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up meeting Brian Schweitzer, who was uh, running for governor, and he asked me to run his campaign. So I transitioned from doing the environmental work to politics. And of course, I had a previous life working in the Clinton administration in the 1990s, working on Bill Clinton's Actually, both of his campaigns for president. So that's the way it worked. And yeah, I, the environment that was what we were working on back then was the roadless, the roadless rule that had been passed by the by Bill Clinton and that George Bush tried to undo, and it protected you know millions of acres nationally of roadless lands, um, and which is important because when you build roads, you fragment habitat, 
you know, for grizzlies and other, other important species. And so that was the thing that we were doing down there. And, <clears throat> but one way or the other, I ended up back in politics and, you know, Schweitzer at that time was a rancher, had never held office, um, very colorful, charismatic figure. And he, uh, and I ended up moving up to Whitefish and effectively, um, kind of, he ran the campaign from his ranch and, and it was just a blast. And when he won, I ended up following him down to Helena. So the capital and I worked for him for eight years. So, so during your eight years working for Brian Schweitzer and then later working for Steve Bullock and then being secretary of state, deputy secretary of state for three years, what was that whole experience like being in state government? Well, you know, the, the Schweitzer years, Schweitzer was a very, very powerful, very popular um, governor. He was like a kind of a Huey Long figure. He was a big time populist and he, uh, he played for keeps and, and the public really loved him and he uh, really struck fear in his opponents to the point where they started to just do whatever he said and they didn't really want to go up against him. And it was enjoyable to be a part of something like that because, uh, you know, this is a Republican state. It's a red state, one of the reddest in America. And yet we were able to sort of, you know, we had a, this is a progressive governor, a populist governor, somebody who would advocate for universal health insurance, uh, you know, freely, unabashedly, you know, in a very conservative state. It was kind of interesting to be, it, it, it was, it was amazing to see him do that when, you know, you saw Democrats nationally try to advise that we shouldn't be doing that, that he should basically moderate himself in all respects. And so he had a kind of a formula uh, where he really got out there and, and uh, always found a way to sell, to sell what he believed in, in a way that even a conservative crowd would enjoy, would enjoy hearing about. And so that was, uh, and, and Steve Bullock, the, the, the succeeding governor, did the same thing in many ways. And so, you know, that's, that's what being a Democrat in Montana has been about the last sort of almost two decades. Now it's, it's just kind of disappeared a little bit because of the, the national divisions have sort of made their way into Montana and it's much harder. But, but you could sort of carve your own path as a Democrat in those days and it was, it was, fun, it was fun to be involved in it. And then you move from being an advisor to a role as deputy secretary of state. How did that transition uh, affect you? Well, it it uh, it was that you know th that was sort of it was in an interim piece when I, I ended up, you know, when the Schweitzer administration came to an end, I I had an opportunity to take that role, secretary of state's office, and we supervise. You know, we are you. They have a uh, um, they the secretary of state oversees. Um, business services in the state, but more important, election services. And so elections are run by the counties, but there is a kind of a supervisory and a, a role that the Secretary of State plays. And, um, and so I, we got to really dig down and work on the way that elections are run in this state. And, you know, it's, this is a small state, so it's nice. We still use paper ballots. 
people go to the polls and they uh, and they you know they know the the, the the person working at the poll. They they there there's even in a most counties have very small turnout you know compared to the compared to the larger cities. So it's it's very reliable. Um, there have rarely been any major issues or accusations. You hear a lot of talk about fraud and you know the, the, the legitimacy of elections nowadays. It's never really been a problem in Montana. Um, if it's even been a problem anywhere else. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we, we did a fair amount, you know, three years of working on that kind of thing and trying to strengthen voter rights, trying to make sure that Native Americans can get to the polls, um, trying to make sure that people can vote by mail. Uh, just, you know, it, I think that Montanans are lucky to live in a small state where they have an election system that's sort of very... F- it's it's very familiar and it's 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 easy it's convenient and we're way ahead of the rest of the country in terms of access you know you can vote by mail in montana for for any reason or no reason at all you can just request a ballot uh there are very few states where that really is the case i mean growing up in new york you know i remember to get an absentee ballot in new york was like you had to come up with an excuse you had to you had to get it approved and that's still the case in many states. We have, you know, Montana is probably one of the easiest places to vote in America. You mentioned that when you came to Montana, Bozeman was a small town. So you've been in Montana now for more than 20 years. How has it changed since you first came? Well, it's just busier, more crowded, you know, it's, uh, and more people coming, building big places, more tourism, more vacationing. The national parks. I mean, I used to be able to you used to be able to just drive up to Glacier and just do whatever you wanted. Now you have to get a ticket, a reservation. Yellowstone is a, is a, is mobbed, so it's it's uh, you know you have a lot of sprawl. There's issues with you know or where there might have been better urban planning back in the day, and now we're sort of paying for it in places like Bozeman and Missoula. So it's 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 just a growing state, and I think people have discovered it. People want to be here. Um, and it's, uh, it, it sort of, it is what it is. I don't know that there's anything you can do about it. I know a lot of people in Montana right now aren't happy about what's happening and the pandemic accelerated something that is, was already going on. Um, you see property values have now doubled in some places in the last year and a half. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just a change. It's, I hate to say it, but it is inevitable change. I think that the question is, you know, sort of how do you protect some of the people that have lived here a long time? Maybe they own a house and the property tax bill has gotten so enormous that they can't afford it anymore. I mean, those are the sort of the injustices that you see when you have a lot of wealthy people moving in. So, that you know, everybody's discussing things like that and how do you solve that problem right now. But it's not so easy. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, an, it's, it's, it's. It's sort of the march of populations and, and the displacement of, of, of certain people and a, and a kind of a way of life that they had. And it's, it's a little bit sad to see some of it. But I, it is still, you know, it is still an enormous state. And we still only have a million two, a million three in terms of our population size. So there's still plenty of space and it's still a great place to live and work and, and have a community. You had responsibility in, in government for some business services. You worked on uh, Brian Schweitzer's campaign and talked about economic issues and, and uh, you know, what the future might look like. 
So now 20 years later, what is the business landscape looking like in Montana? Well, the biggest problem, well, go back for a minute. I mean, yeah, we, the, the thing that we were proudest of is, is the development of renewable energy. I mean, we really created a wind energy economy in this, in this state. Um, I think that there's as much potential for solar as there was, as there was for, for wind. And I think the wind, the wind sector can still keep growing. Um, I think the problem is you need, you need a legislature and a public service commission that are on the same page. And I don't know that they are right now. But at some point, you know, we still have tremendous capacity for renewable energy and also, you know, distributed generation where people put solar panels on their house and they do that kind of thing. We're, 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 we're a little bit behind that nationally. I mean, there are places in America where it's almost a requirement that if you build a new home, you have to put solar panels on or at least make it solar ready. So I think, I think if some people want to know what, what can Montana do to move forward in that regard, you need the legislature and, and the Public Service Commission to really get on board. And, and they're very, they are right now conservative Republican bodies. And so, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with all of that. But, uh, you know, the business climate right now is that there's a worker shortage in the state. It's impossible to find workers. And that's a function of sort of what happened here during the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, there was a worker shortage. So you see, you know, places like McDonald's offering 20, I don't know, 20, 25 bucks an hour in Bozeman. Um, and, 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 you know, they're a national corporation. They can do it. But if you have a locally owned coffee shop, you know, you see some of these places have simply been closed on weekdays, uh, you'll see a sign on the store. It says, we're closed. We can't, we don't have anybody to work here right now. And even Starbucks, even larger places, Starbucks has closed down many days in Helena. They're just, you see a sign that says, sorry, we're closed. And it's because they don't have anybody to staff it. So <clears throat> it's a statewide problem. And it's, uh, uh, you know, we've seen it before. We saw it when we had the oil boom out east. And it was a similar phenomenon, uh, but that was temporary and that was very local. This is, this is much, much wider right now. And from your perspective, what's causing this in Montana? Well, it's just, I mean, there's been a rush of people, just the economic, the, amount, the sheer amount of economic activity, the amount of home building, the amount of people that are, that came here during the pandemic and that maybe, you know, not all of whom are leaving uh, Montana is a place where people move to a lot, but not many leave. And so it's kind of a, it's very much oftentimes a one-way street. And so it's just a, a state that is growing so fast that I think it's just a very difficult, it, it's just one more aspect to the, to the influx and the population movement that you're seeing. And I don't know, I don't, I'm not an economist. I don't know what the answer is. Uh, but it's it's very real right now, and of course, some people point to it and say, "Well, that's not such a bad thing that employers have to offer more money," and they're right. Um, I mean, but but the problem is that there are some businesses that end up not not being able to offer more because they won't be able to show a profit. And so that's the, the same debate really that occurs when the minimum wage debate comes up, and it's it's very tricky. I listen to economists talk about it all the time, and I cannot tell you that anybody has really an answer or even has conceived of a solution. But I think these things tend to, because it's a free country and people can go where they want, I think these things tend to end up finding a stasis someplace where, you know, enough workers show up to meet the demand. 
And that is ultimately how they resolve. Let me switch gears a little bit for a minute. Your father was a dominant force in professional sports for more than 30 years. Why didn't you follow in his footsteps? I don't know that I can answer that except to say that I was, I was interested in public service and I like politics. And, uh, and I have occasionally dabbled in sports, sports enterprises. Um, I, I was part of a group that tried to relocate a Major League Baseball team to Mexico back in the early 2000s. And, uh, uh, and, and of course, now I've, I've picked up a lot of, what, of the work that my dad was doing in his later years. But uh, I, I just enjoy public service. I, I enjoy, I've always enjoyed politics. I think working at, at high levels of government is a lot of fun. It really gets your blood flowing, and you feel like you're doing something that has a very important purpose. And you're helping people. And so I, I've always just enjoyed it. I've enjoyed not just public service, but, but public interest work as well. And, you know, prior to the, the last two years, I was actually a state tax appeals judge after I, I left the, gov- the governor's office. And so, you know, that, it's just another chapter. It's another interesting piece of, of, you know, of public service. So while you didn't follow in your father's footsteps, obviously you were well aware of his career and, and what he was involved in. And he was such an innovator. I mean, at the time he took over the NBA, uh, it was faltering, you know, and he led a, I guess, a refocusing of the league from teams to individual stars, you know, people like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, you know, all bloomed while he was the commissioner of the league. How did that all come about? How did that whole transition come about from your perspective? Well, you know, it, it was it was just an important time in American history for professional sports, you know, and uh, I mean, I he he obviously he worked very hard to kind of turn the NBA into something that people wanted to watch. I mean, that's 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 the short of it. Now, I think he always viewed it as as success in something like a sports league is about not just about the commissioner; it's more about everybody, the owners, the players, everybody, sort of doing their own doing their job. And, and kind of working together. And it is, it is a cooperative thing. I mean, they share, they share the players and the owners share the revenue. So it's always been an alignment of interests, I think, that has caused the NBA to do very well. What do you think was his greatest legacy? You know, it's funny. I, I think he would describe it as starting... He, one of the things he always loved to brag about was starting the WNBA because he thought... That was kind of a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a business project, but also a, a social project, and, and it was something that he had to fight very hard for, and kind of spend a lot of professional capital to make happen. The owners didn't like it at first, and they often asked him to shut it down because it was a loser. But now it's really been around now. I guess what it's it's in its twentieth year or something like that, and. Um, and they're going stronger than ever. And so he, he kind of enjoyed that stuff. I think he liked the international work. He liked, he liked the expansion internationally. And, and, I, and I also think he just he enjoyed seeing players thrive and become better people. And so I think, you know, that the, the drug policy stuff, for example, the 1980s, when he had to be kind of tough and 
and and really sort of lay down the law in terms of in terms of drug testing and cocaine use. You know, he saw that as protecting the players and protecting their image because if you have one guy who gets busted, then the public in those days thought that all basketball players were cocaine addicts. And so he he felt that he was protecting them rather than disciplining them. And I think a lot of players nowadays, if you you know, I talk to retired NBA players all the time. I work with a lot of them on some of the deals that we do. And they, um, if you listen to them talk about my dad, you know, they talk about what they like is that he, he always had a bigger purpose when he would have to discipline them or, 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 or come to terms with them over something that at the time was a little bit difficult for the players. Um, they appreciate it now looking back because they understand that he, was, he, he had them in mind. Um, whether it was kicking them out for fi- you know for fighting or throwing a punch, whatever it was, he he had he was always concerned with their image, and what he realized is that if he was the only person that could really that could really um, help from the very top um, in a kind of a unilateral way sometimes, and so I think you see a lot of appreciation nowadays from some of the players. That, that played in those days and back when the NBA was really not as big as it is today. And he was trying to get it off the ground and try to working on making sure that the players, that America liked watching the NBA and had a good impression of what an NBA player is. And obviously there was a huge racial component of that because it was a majority black league. And he was dealing with things that a lot of other sports leagues didn't have to deal with. The, 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 there, were, there were racial undertones to a lot of the criticism that people used to level against NBA players. You saw it all the time. And that was one of the major things that was happening when he had to institute the drug policies in the, in the, you know, in the mid to late 80s. And, and um, those are very difficult things to deal with. And so it's nice to hear former players today, and even current players today, you know, talk in a way that they... That that they in an appreciative way, whereas you know people, the players used to, a lot of the players used to be really pissed off at my father when he would come down hard. So, I remember him the most when Magic Johnson had to come to terms with his contracting aids, and your father was by his side. I thought that was a very right. moving. I remember. I remember the day that my dad called me. He called me. The day, actually, it was the morning. I think it was the early the morning of that press conference before it was public, and he told me what he was going to be doing that that day. He was just basically giving me a heads up in case I heard about it. And uh, and uh, he said to me, he said that there was a disagreement among owners that some of them wanted him, a couple of them wanted him to support Magic, and a lot of them wanted him. Uh, his words to me were, they wanted they wanted him to throw him in the throw Magic in the Hudson River. <laughs> With a pair of cement boots. In other words, they didn't. There are plenty of owners that didn't think that he should be embracing Magic Johnson. Um, they thought it was. They thought it might tarnish the league, and they thought it was. You know, this is. They thought that somehow it would be condoning. You know, a type of behavior that they didn't approve of or whatever. And and so he that you know and that's you ask what my dad's sort of what his favorite legacy was. I think, I think he, he was very much a person who believed that you should try to make public opinion rather than simply respond to public opinion. And that's what he felt he was doing when he you know, embraced magic. 
And I think, you know, so, and, and on some level, I think it was what he was doing when he started the WNBA, too. Eric, when your dad was supporting Magic Johnson, the HIV epidemic was in its infancy and people weren't sure about where it was going to be headed and what the impact was going to be and all those sorts of things. Why did your father decide so, you know, directly to be a, a supporter of, of uh, Magic Johnson at that point? Because they did know, science, science already did know that a person could live a normal, you know, could live a normal life and interact with the public and it wouldn't be a danger to the public. And so it, 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 the public might not have realized that, but my dad was well aware of that. So I think he felt that he was doing a proper public service in embracing magic rather than, you know, doing what a lot of other people thought he would do, which was to walk away from him. I'm speaking with Eric Stern, venture capitalist and former state government politico. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by Montana Rail Links, committed to safely delivering transportation solutions to their customers and partners. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. After your dad passed the NBA leadership mantle to, on to Adam Silver in 2016, he began venture investing in sports technology companies. You're now more directly involved in this portfolio, which has more than 50 companies and 50 investments in it. After your public service career, how has this transition been for you? Uh it's been interesting. I'm, I'm enjoying it. You know, my dad and I worked on it a little bit together on and off um, in the last five years of his, six years of his life. And, uh, and I was sort of a kitchen cabinet advisor to him on some of these companies when he would be deciding whether or not to make investments. We, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's a portfolio of very small seed investments where we try to incubate companies that are really doing, really show potential. They're generally speaking, they're, most of them are very very young founders. They start out very small. Um, a good deal of them will fail. It's just part of the business. And you hope for, you know, a handful to do extremely well, either be acquired or go public. And then that covers the cost of the other, of the many other uh, uh, smaller ones that, that don't make it. Um, but it's been interesting. It's, uh, it is a very large and sprawling portfolio. And um, it was... It was my father's way of sort of getting into the the new age of technology. His, you know, he sort of cut his teeth on sort of the the older the older version of sports media, which was, you know, cable TV, satellite, you know, some of the early the early internet age. But this this is sort of like the, this is sort of an area where I think he it was sort of just coming about in in his when he was toward the end of his term as commissioner and he and he just in, still still very much enjoyed he what he loved is to is to watch the way in which media was changing and and technology was changing the way um uh, media rights were being delivered and, and and broadcasts were being consumed and content was being consumed so and obviously it's in such a state of flux now that um that uh you know, it makes for some, some very interesting investment decisions. 
So give me some examples of the kind of companies and the kind of technology and the kind of changes and innovations that these companies are engaged in. Well, it, there are different, different ways in which he approached uh, investing in sports technology. So, for example, some of it is very much, a brick, very much physical and brick and mortar. For example, he's got a, we have a company called, that we have investment in called uh, uh, Proteus Motion which is a weight training device that athletes are using. And they can, you can use the machine to mimic the movement of the golf swing or the, or, or the way the pitcher throws a ball or the way an athlete shoots a basketball or throws a football or delivers a block. And so it's, it's you know, Bryson DeChambeau just, just signed up and, and is now an endorser of the product. So he, that kind of thing. We have another one called Sparta Science, which is... Um, they have something called the force plate. An athlete jumps up and down on this thing about a dozen times, and they can tell the athlete what his injuries will be later in his career by the way he lands on the plate. They're not the only one to have a technology like that, but they are the best right now, and they're doing very well. So that stuff, you know, it's, it's very much, it's, 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 a, it's a physical product. Um, then we had, you know, things that are more, tech media. So for example, um, uh, we have an investment in a company called Buzzer, which basically for uh, 99 cents, you can watch the end of any sporting event, <laughs> the last two minutes of a sporting event, things like that. They're trying to get into, because what they've discovered is a lot of people aren't watching full sporting events nowadays. Young people just want to see the highlights or they want to see the part that matters. Um, we have... Uh, uh, made an investment in a company called Bitfry. They're a video game developer, and they uh, uh, they they have a guy by the name of Ben Friedland who built this video game company. And what he did is he went out and got the rights, the video game rights, for sports personalities not in their own sport for every other sport. So, for example, this video game it's called Ultimate Rivals. It's a basketball game. It's similar to one of the early NBA video games. But you have, <clears throat> you have hockey players and football players playing basketball. So he can have, you can have Tom Brady playing the basketball game, you know, as you play, that kind of thing. So, and then we, you know, we, have, we, have, we were uh, uh, very big supporters of the, a company called Overtime. And if they've been in the news a lot because they're starting a high school basketball sports league. Uh, they're going to have kids who are 15, 16, 17 years old, and they're going to pay them. And it's sort of a direct track to the pros kind of thing where they are, they are going to offer real money to young men who want to just, rather than go to college, they want to just start playing professional ball. So they're doing very well, and they've made a lot of news lately, and they're gonna, their season, it's, it starts up this month. You know, that may be a little controversial here, but as some of us know, as you know, in Latin America and Europe, m many ball players go directly from public school into professional sports. That's right, and, and and even in America, I mean, oftentimes some of the greatest tennis players, Rafael Nadal, for example, Andre Agassi, they went directly into professional sports out of high school. Um, and 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 as you said, in Europe, that's the way it is. Women's soccer, you frequently see it. Um, it, it you know, it's and it's. It's the future, whether people like it or not. That is to say that if, if you're a top high school ball player right now, uh, 
in America, you're one of the best ball- basketball players on earth. You're probably in the top, what, six, seven hundred players in the world. And, and the notion that you should have to sit in college for four years before you were able to ply your trade doesn't really make sense. It's, it's, um, it is, uh, it's something that probably, you know, it's, it's outlived its usefulness. And I think that generally speaking, in not too long, I think you're going to see a direct track from high school to a lot of professional sports. That brings up the whole issue of the commercialization of sports. You know, college and high school sports uh, is changing at an ever-increasing rate. We have the, you know, in college football now and, and some other sports, we have the, uh, the portal where you can change schools to go to a better school. They're offering um, new financial incentives at universities for, for uh, athletic, uh, you know, visible athletic players can do very well. Um, where is that all headed? particularly when you factor in the dominant role that social media plays in all of this. Right. We, we, we just made a small investment in a small company called Open Sponsorship, which allows athletes, including high, small, smaller-sized athletes, not somebody like LeBron James that has 100 million Twitter followers or whatever he has, somebody that might have 10,000 or 20,000 Twitter followers, to, to tweet and on and post on Instagram and Twitter and wherever else for dough. They basically have an app. And on the one end, you have companies that want influencers to to post and tweet about their product. And on the other end, you have athletes that represent a certain demographic and that the companies find to be valuable spokespeople. And so they might only make a hundred bucks a week doing it. But it enables, it enables these guys or these gals, young people with social media followings, to make as much money as their following can command, as they can command based on how many followers they have. And some of these high school basketball players have 5, 10 million Instagram followers. And that was actually one of the, the impetus behind the, the, the starting of the Overtime Elite League, is that they basically have a, a, a connection to the public as athletes that is really incredibly valuable and and it will help them reach those followers and it obviously it will enable them to make a living on it so now that you're more actively involved in the investment portfolio what's appealing to you and what are you looking for in companies that you're going to put family money into so one of the things that's appealing, it's actually kind of humorous, is that some of these investments are in areas that my father had the reverse opinion of when he was the commissioner 10, 15, 20 years ago. So we have some investments in sports betting companies. He was adamantly against sports betting back in the day. But he eventually came around when he saw that it's happening, whether or not he likes it or not. So now, so now you know, companies like uh, uh, RotoQL or Fubo, um, you know, they, 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 and then, and then, you know, he used to institute, he had drug policies that he instituted as commissioner, but now we have investments in cannabis companies. So there was a time where you could get in trouble for smoking pot if you were a professional ball player, including an NBA player. And now, you know, towards the end, my father was making investments in Mike Tyson's cannabis company or, or, uh, 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 for example, a company called Flowhub out of Colorado which makes compliance software that is now being used by a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the cannabis companies around the country. So um, that part is always sort of 
I find it amusing and fun. Um, and then the, uh, uh, and then in ter- but in terms of your question of what you look for, you obviously look for smart people. And that's the best part of this is that we're really, <clears throat> the part that I like the most is we help, you know, folks that are really just trying to get something off the ground. And they're really mostly in their 20s and their 30s. These are extremely bright, enterprising uh, young men and women. Um, and talking with them sometimes, it almost makes me feel stupid because they're just so, so good at what they do. And they're, they've managed to create something, usually some type of tech property, that uh, just requ- requires such an amount of you know tech tech knowledge, marketing knowledge, in uh, you know an understanding of how to go out and raise money, how to have a workforce. Um, so it's 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 I, the, the part that, it, that that continues to amaze me is just how many smart people there are in this world that do these kinds of things. So as you're evaluating an investment, are you trying to learn as much as you can about the technology and the, the competition and the position it has in the market? Or are you really betting on the people? I think both. If you First, you look at a product and you say, is this thing going to get hot? You know, where will this thing be in 10 years? What's the real value of this, you know, the app or the machine or whatever, right? You're doing your best to just look into a crystal ball and ask yourself, is this something that the public or that the corporate world is going to want to make use of at some point? Um, and some of these companies, they struggled for decades before anything happens. Um, we have a company called Palmetto Solar. And the, the CEO, Chris Kemper, was, I mean, he was on his, it was like, it was on his last leg a decade ago. And, and my father made a small investment when he was looking for just to raise a few million bucks. My dad threw in a little bit of cash. And, and Chris tells me to this day that he basically, it was like a lifeline. They are now, they are now basically getting calls every two days from, you know, people trying to acquire them or take them, you know, take them public via SPAC. And they are, they have become a, a, a massive presence in the solar industry. And uh, they help, they basically send teams of people out <clears throat> to neighborhoods and literally knock on your door and will help you go through the whole process of installing solar panels on your house and learning about what you can save. And they've kind of, they're, they're, they're sort of, they're, they're compiling the process and streamlining it for the consumer. So some of these things, you know, they look good and then they just fizzle for a long period of time. And then suddenly... Timing is everything, and and now and they and they do enormously well, but and some of them launch very quickly and become huge successes almost overnight, and and, and that's the other thing is you have to believe that the person you're investing in will stick with it for a long, long period, and among other things, not sell out for cheap. For our listeners, you mentioned SPAC. Can you tell our listeners what a SPAC is? SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company and long story short it's a it's a way to streamline it's a it's a fast track public offering where a company can go public and trade on on the public on the public markets without having to go through all the due diligence and all the long much longer process of a traditional initial public offering and it's very controversial but you know in in the sector that I'm in right now it's it's a very large 
presence, looming presence right now because they are, these companies, generally speaking, that raise venture capital, they, they look ultimately to either get acquired or go public. Those are the two exits that everybody's hoping for. And so, and so the, the SPAC phenomenon is, is very relevant to what we're doing. So tell me, what about your work experience you know, that lends itself to now being able to evaluate companies and decide on who you're going to invest in? I, you know, I've always enjoyed working on, in long shot projects and I, you know, on and off, I've, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 uh, I mean, for example, when I joined up with Brian Schweitzer in 2004, I didn't, you know, it was sort of a ridiculous concept that this guy who had never held office could become governor. So, you know, things like that. I, I, uh, I, I, I like working for underdogs and I, and I enjoy you know, getting involved in things that maybe don't have a great chance of success, um, you know, because the payoff is, the reward is just greater when you succeed. And, you know, I, I also think there was a lot, we did a lot of economic development in Montana, working with tons of investors, companies, promoters, um, anybody with two nickels to rub together, you know, to rub together would come in the office and they want to do, do a project in the state. And I kind of got a feel for for that side of things and, and, and came to appreciate what it meant to try to put together a company when you don't have any money. Um, and so that, and obviously, you know, having, having sort of been able to watch at close range, my father and how he did things over the course of his career, obviously that arguably might've been the most important influence on me. You've had an interesting career mix of public service, environmental causes, political commentary, you know, and now venture capital investments. What does the future look like for Eric Stern? You know, I, all things being equal, I like the public service the most. The problem is that, at least in Montana, you know, we, uh, I'm, I was very much a part of the democratic world here, and the Democrats have really been banished lately uh, in state government, state politics. So it's going to be a little bit of a, of a while before that comes back around. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, who knows? You never know. I, I, I seem to have always just gravitated toward public service. But if I'm, I am enjoying the private sector right now. Um, and we'll just see what happens. Eric, is always fascinating catching up with you, talking with you. Thanks uh, for joining me today on Can Do. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Arnie. I appreciate your listening to Can Do, produced by Lena Beck and Beth Ann Austin in association with Montana Public Radio. For comments, recommendations for future guests, or general information, please go to mtpr.org. There you'll find previous guests' contact information and content from all our shows. Listen next time when I'll talk with Angelina Salazar, CEO of Western Healthcare Alliance, and Chris Hopkins, CEO of Montana Health Network. I'm Arnie Sherman, wishing you good health and prosperity.